Every now and again you watch something on TV, film or in the old days on stage and even though you knew a certain actor was in a show you couldn't see her or him because so completely had they assimilated the person they were playing they themselves had become invisible. These performances are exceptionally powerful and the demands it makes on an actor must be high. They become shapeshifters, moulding their features and personality into another being with a different history and outlook. The performances I've seen where it happens are rare. Laurence Olivier could do it, Kate Winslet can, and I've seen the actor Mark Rylance do it on more than one occasion. This is at the heart of what we ask actors to do when they play a part, create a performance and tell us a story. This episode, which comes in two parts, is about how actors achieve that metamorphosis and the role that textiles play in helping them cast a spell in the essential make-believe of the stage and film set. It looks at how costume helps create performance and what fabrics do to conjure the illusion, the suspension of belief that is needed. And then in the next episode of this podcast, we go behind the stage and the screen and look at the hidden hands that create the illusion. We hear from the costume designers and the breakdown artists who put their hearts and minds behind what we see. Welcome to the second series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews. I'm a hand weaver interested in how cloth speaks to us and the impact it has on our lives. Each of the episodes in this series takes an emotion and unravels how we express that feeling in textiles. This time we're looking at a feeling of transformation. It's quite sort of ephemeral and strange, the business of getting ready to become another person. And there are no real rules about how you approach it. And, and sometimes it, you can feel quite quite at sea with it all. It's not really until you go into the first costume fitting with the costume designer that you actually start to sort of get your teeth into something that feels tangible and um, and real. And, and it really is where you begin to start to understand who the character is and you, you, you go through, you know, the very first stages of talking about what the person might wear but when I come into the costume fitting, I sort of instinctively n know what feels right and what doesn't feel right. And um, and you realize you know more about the person that you're playing than you thought you did. And it's kind of a relief always to just get there and start and start talking about it. That's Emily Mortimer, an actor familiar to many for her roles in several well-known films, including The Perfect Woman in Notting Hill, Cat Ashley with Kate Blanchett in Elizabeth, Woody Allen's film Match Point, Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, and the 2018 film 
Mary Poppins Returns. She both directs and acts in a new BBC series of Nancy Mitford's Heartbreaker, The Pursuit of Love, which will air in the UK in the next couple of months. Emily says that costume is a vital element of any performance. Yes, it just totally does shapeshift you when it's the right costume. It makes you walk a different way and it makes you talk a different way and move a different way and behave a different way when it's right. And when it's not right, it's awful. When it's right, you don't have to think about it. You're just being helped to to step into this new person's skin and um, and everything becomes easier. But when it's not right, it, it's everything becomes harder and you're battling against it and you're aware of it and you're worrying about it. Each actor has a different way of grabbing hold of the corner of a new person and pulling on it to start the process of transformation. Emily begins with books and research, YouTube and Google. Others do it differently. When I get offered a, a role, I, I often like to get in touch with the costume designer very early on in the process. It's one of the first contacts that I request. A lot of times the costume designers are the ones who are the first people to send me visual references for the entire world of the movie. Not just the costumes of my own character, but for everything about the world of the movie, and especially if it's a period, but whatever milieu it might be. Usually they've been hired before I have, and they have done a lot of research and have all these boards of, of photographs of inspiration for all the different characters, mine included, and for the whole surrounding atmosphere. And so I try to get in touch with them quickly and then ask them to just send me everything that they have so that I have a sense of, of all the different um, people and everything that the, that the style and feel of the, of the world is that, that the director has in mind. Yeah, I would say it's just a huge, huge part of, of character because I think that the way that people dress affects the way that they are physically, the way that they move. And it's a, always a, a very strong reflection of a lot of things that are going on psychologically with the character. So um, it, it really is a very high priority for me. That's Alessandro Nivola, who is Emily Mortimer's real-life partner. He's a successful actor who's played a huge variety of roles, from starring opposite Helen Mirren on Broadway to being in Jurassic Park 3 and lots of British costume drama. He was in John Woo's film Face Off, playing Nick Cage's younger brother, and in Selma, the film about the US civil rights movement. British audiences have seen him recently playing Mr. Dean opposite Gemma Arterton in the TV remake of Black Narcissus. That film was first made in 1947 by Pressburger and Powell with David Farrar in the role of Mr. Dean. Black Narcissus had one deal breaker as far as costumes went, which was that David Farrar in the original spent most of the movie in these very short little shorts. And 
I, I told the director that, that, that there was no way I was doing this movie if that was going to be the demand. There were two things. There were the shorts and the three-foot-tall pony that he rode around. So the costumers were, uh, you know, forced to find ways around the uh, original reference as far as that went. So no pony and no shorts but there was something vital about the character of Mr. Dean that Alessandro wanted to get across. It was very important to me to draw the audience's attention to uh, Mr. Dean's World War I experience because although he doesn't make a lot of reference to it, and he doesn't really explain to Sister Cloda why he's chosen to kind of step out of English life and move to this remote part of the world, it seemed like some kind of war trauma had a lot to do with it and um, something that he'd experienced during, you know, while fighting. And so as much as possible, we wanted to keep making reference to that. And Cave had a lot of um, things that were left over from his stuff that he wore during the fighting. And so, you know, I had boots and pants and hats and things that had been, that I'd worn during during my war experience, my experience as a soldier. My gun was something that, I, you know, was a uh, military issue from that period. As much as possible, that, that was there to kind of keep suggesting that that, that experience had had a, a big impact on, on him emotionally and psychologically. And here is one of the powers of cloth and costume for actors inhabiting another person. They can express things that aren't spoken. They're not always things that the audience will even pick up on. I mean, sometimes they're just things that um, remind me of, of something that's important, uh, you know, that might be an obsession of the character, something that the character is fixated on. Anything that kind of keeps drawing your own imagination back to those things that are specific and personal to the character, just root you in the, the reality of the, of the world and the person that you're playing. And so it's not all for the sake, it's not all for the audience. Some of it is just for you. Both these actors understand that although in one sense clothes conceal us, they also reveal us in a much greater way than we think. And for actors engaged in translating themselves and making us believe in that, it's a gift. What you're looking for is clues. Just from the way that people wear their clothes in real life, you, can, you, you know that they're, they're, there's, you can tell so much about somebody just from the clothes that they choose to wear. And um, I think it is a combination of sort of things that you yourself are aware of and, um, and you're doing as a kind of presentational thing to the world to show who you are as a person. But then there's a gap between what you think you're coming across as and then what you really are coming across as is something a little bit different because you're you're revealing things about yourself without meaning to all the time so that's what one is constantly 
sort of on the lookout for um, when you're trying to kind of do the detective work to work out who this person is. But you're always looking for what the problem is, and and the problem is is uh, often manifests itself in a way that people are, are unaware of. There's two things going on um, in in every in a way in every part of sort of assessing and and working out who the the character is. You know, um, the gap between how they want to be perceived and how and and then what they are really perceiving without realizing it and i think that's part that's really interesting process and and definitely costume is an, a major a major part of that it's a giveaway it's like a tell you know how people choose to dress themselves for emily the difficulty can lie not in having to play someone who is very different from you but with someone who is close to your own personality Often when you're not quite sure who the person is and that they're not a million miles away from who you are, you tend to just go for things that sort of look good on you. <laughs> I mean, obviously you want to look good, but but of course one does. But but that's not, you know, what you might wear in real life is 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 not the key to becoming a, a, another person. And so sometimes it can get quite confusing if it's something that's set in the sort of, you know, now and you're playing somebody that might not be a million miles away from you, you have to kind of force yourself to be, kind of go outside your comfort zone, as they say, and wear things that you you, you yourself wouldn't wear in a bid to find who this other person is. And then there are the moments when actors decide it's time to use costume to go in an unexpected direction and come up with something completely different. Especially if, like Alessandro, you're playing a gangster alongside Nicolas Cage in John Woo's film Face Off. I was playing Nicolas Cage's younger brother. In the script, he was originally kind of a mini-me of him. Like they, they both were described as having kind of leather pants and being these kind of clubbing criminals or whatever who were um, kind of sleazy or whatever. And I knew that I could never like out wild at heart Nick Cage and um, so that maybe I should go the opposite direction and so when I arrived at my first fitting they had all of that kind of like leather coats and all that kind of thing and I told them that I wanted to look like Woody Allen and that um, I needed wide whale corduroys and sort of you know uh, boat shoes and like sweater, sleeveless sweater vests and um, and glasses and things and and they were kind of baffled by it. And sometimes on these movies that are so huge, nobody's really paying attention to what you're doing until you're on set and the camera's rolling. And so you can get away with all kinds of things before people realize that you've kind of taken a left turn so they dressed me that way and I showed up on set the first day and I was kind of paraded in front of John Woo to get his approval before we started filming and I was clearly just not at all what he had in mind for this character I mean just nothing like the way that he conceived of it and he um, I remember him sort of looking me up and down a few times and, you know, he's a very hard man to read anyway, but he then nodded and he said, okay, but you have machine gun. And that was that. 
<laughs> as long as as long as I had a machine gun, <laughs> he was okay with it. So I was I, I was Woody Allen with a machine gun. Both Emily and Alessandro have played a good deal of costume drama, from Jane Austen to 16th century royalty, from bustles to corsets, and it all carries with it its own kind of pain, especially for women. Yes, 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 because they have to get your waist tiny and they have to, and you're quite grateful for that often, um, you know, the, the need for the tiny waist because it just looks better in those costumes but it is agony and you know miserable and yeah and then there's a great sort of sigh of relief when it comes to lunchtime and you can get but it takes sort of 10 women normally to sort of undo all your stays and your corsets and then it takes another half I'd be basically have five minutes lunch in the you know because you you've got to get out of it in order to you've got to undo it loosen it in order to eat and then you have to tighten it in order to get back on the on the set. And then things like some of them are so sort of conscientious about underwear that they don't really let you wear. You know, they say they wouldn't have had the kind of the bras that keep your boobs up in those days. And so you sort of have to wear these terrible bras that make your boobs look miserable. And then sometimes you find yourself thinking, were these sort of 1930s knickers that I'm wearing? Because I'm not sure that I feel that great about that. But... <laughs> Yes, and also someone else's knickers from the 1930s sort of feel a bit sort of uncertain about. But at the same time as the old-fashioned underwear, you're also wearing a good deal of modern technology. Then there's all sorts of other things going on underneath. You've got your uh, sound pack and your microphone wire and it's all sellotaped to your bare skin half the time and running down your leg and you've got a, a million sound men sort of going up your skirts trying to turn on the battery and so there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on underneath one's costume not just not just ancient underwear and then there are the times when things go wrong I guess it's sort of partly just the experience of doing the job maybe but I have traumatic memories to do with costumes often because I've sort of slightly ruined them because I, I'm, I'm as Alessandro will attest I spill things easily so I do I do remember on Elizabeth I, the, the movie of Elizabeth which was Kate Blanchett's sort of big entry and entree to the world I was her head chief lady in waiting and we were wearing all these extraordinarily beautiful huge uh, Elizabethan dresses with millions of petticoats. I mean, the material itself, it was all imported from India, but the finest silk because it was directed by Shaker Kapoor. So there was a lot of sort of Indian influence in the costumes and the set design. And, and um, Alexandra Byrne, who's a f famous costume designer who's won Oscars and been nominated many, many times for Oscars, designed the costumes. And I know because I met one of her assistants recently that she still talks about me spilling my lunch all down my outfit and how just sort of disgusted she was by the fact that uh, I had all but ruined one of these just sort of exquisite, extremely expensively made, um, one of a kind sort of Elizabethan pieces. And um, and the whole crew, uh, the whole cast after I uh, this terrible incident with my lunch uh, was forced to wear really kind of humiliating eight bibs 
and um and everybody hated me because uh, so I have a sort of trauma. <laughs> I mean, they all resented me terribly because I'd forced them into wearing these pet bibs. Um, so I have a traumatic uh, memory of of that costume. And then there are the pleasures of working with people like Sandy Powell, who's the acknowledged queen of costume designers. If the costume designer is sort of not such a superstar costume designer, there are times when you can feel a little bit anxious that maybe they're, you're the one that's going to have to be kind of leading the, the charge in terms of finding the right look for your character. But when it's someone like Sandy, you come and, and the detail to which she's already thought about who your character is and how your character fits into the rest of the piece and the world and the colours and the colours that you would never, ever put together um, yourself because they're brave and they're odd and yet they kind of somehow sort of sing on camera in a way that if it was something that you'd put together it never would and she's just so brilliant and so it's uh, such a pleasure being um, given one of her costumes to wear and going through the whole process of choosing what to wear with her it's really uh, you know a, a, one of the great sort of treats of my life has been working with her. It's easy for us to think that the clothes are being used just to create a new carapace for the actors to inhabit. And it's an odd thing trying to become someone else, trying to cast off or repress your own being and assume the mask of another. In some senses, it could be frightening or liberating. What Emily and Alessandro are saying, though, is that it's the textiles and the costumes that carry the weight of bringing out underlying feelings and truths that make up a person. Things that might be hidden or which cannot be articulated but are transmitted to us by another means entirely. Something that exists outside words but can be commandeered by a thoughtful actor to form the foundation of what they do in conjuring a performance. This turns on its head my understanding of clothes. We perceive them in their most elemental form as being there to cover us, to warm us, to conceal us. But what actors understand is that they reveal us instead. Last year I, I made this mob movie that's a prequel to the Sopranos series. It's called The Many Saints of Newark. You know, there was actually quite a lot of variety to the clothes of my character because on the one hand I was playing a kind of you know violent thuggish person but on the other hand somebody who was really stylish I had a, a range of things from like just impeccably tailored suits and a lot of kind of jewelry and tie clips and everything was coordinated you know because Italian Americans who were kind of flashy in the late 60s tended to really like have everything matching and and so there was that and then on the other hand there were was this kind of like home life that was really just the total opposite of of that kind of peacock vibe where uh, you know the, I was wearing like singlet t-shirts and and these kind of really ugly knit short sleeve shirts that had kind of vertical stripe big garish 
brown vertical stripes on them and things. And there, these two kind of different ranges of presentation were really important from scene to scene in terms of what the character was trying to convey at any given time. And sometimes, you know, I could just say to the costume designer, well, you know, this scene, uh, you know, I think he needs to come across as a little bit like insecure or pathetic or, you know, less confident or macho or something. And then there, you know, we would find something that was still in his wardrobe, but that didn't feel as much like his chest was puffed out. Or this is a scene where I really need to like dominate the other character physically. So we would find something that just like made me look as strong and intimidating as possible. And so, and then, you know, there's a million other shades in between, but like within one character's wardrobe, there can be clothes that, reflect all these different kind of states that you know that the character might be in depending on the situation and who the other characters are that um, he's interacting with and that process is you know I, I've found that costume designers really love that and and love being aware of of those concerns even if like it's not something we would necessarily even share with the director both these actors think a great deal about the costumes and even the fabrics they wear and how to use them, because they know how important they are when the moment comes and they're on set. Everything about being able to sort of give your best performance on a set, I think, is you know when the cameras are rolling, is is that you're not having to think about anything but listening to the other person and responding to them, feeling like you can you can be there and you can relax. But in order for that to happen, so much work has to have been done previously leading up to that moment. In order for you to, to stop working and stop worrying and just be there and perform, you have to have, you know, done all this minute research yourself and thought about it and talked about it and sort of dreamt about it and worried about it and read about it and and then and and everybody there has to have done all this work too including the costume designer and if if they've done it right and all the work has gone in that, that should have been gone in and and a bit of inspiration too then 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 you just don't have to think about it and that's when you can give your best performance here's what mark twain wrote in his 1905 short story the Tsar's soliloquy. He said, Without his clothes, a man would be nothing at all. The clothes do not merely make the man, the clothes are the man. That without them, he is a cipher, a vacancy, a nobody, a nothing. There is no power without clothes. The challenge of acting is trying to be as specific as you can about character. That's where, I mean, originality comes from the more specific something is. It's those details that are what um, bring out the, the reality because, because people in real life are so, uh, have so many little specific attributes and good costume designers are really highly attuned to that. And I'm always amazed at how much detail has gone into 
the design, both on uh, with, with clothes and and with um, sets and everything, and and it can't help but kind of catapult you into the reality of that world. Both Emily and Alessandro are fiercely appreciative of the skill and eye for detail that talented costume designers bring to the set and stage. And next time we'll hear from a costume designer and a breakdown artist about the huge variety of techniques and skills that go into what you see in the final production. Here's costume designer Sinead Kideo talking about one costume she helped to put together for Walt Disney's 2017 version of Beauty and the Beast, which starred Emma Watson in the role of Belle. It's a red cape and... Uh, it's one specific costume, but our breakdown and, and dyeing department, they actually made their own blocks to do block printing. I think there's like 16 different fabrics involved in the whole costume. But some of the wool that we used was like a, a vintage Jacob's wool that had been bought in a market. Another one of the linens we used had been sourced, it had been someone's textile project from the 1960s that Jacqueline had sourced on eBay and then that was overdyed using madder. And then we used like a pea silk, which was sourced from India that we'd sourced for another project, but then that was block printed in our in our workroom. Uh, we used some different vintage textiles, hand woven like caddy cotton. I source a lot of cotton from India from hand weavers and, and local cooperatives. There's also like a nettle fabric that we used quite a lot in a few different productions and we've used it in quite a few different ways. Hear more next time about the materials and the processes that go on behind the scenes. This episode of Haptic and Hugh was narrated and edited by me, Joe Andrews. If you go to my website at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen, you'll find a full script of this podcast, pictures of Emily and Alessandro and some of the costumes we've talked about. You can also find a form there to get these podcasts directly in your inbox, which gives you a chance to win some of the textile-related gifts I give away with each episode. Thanks to Alessandro Nivola and Emily Mortimer for sparing their time to think about this. When you see them on stage and screen in future, I hope they've helped you understand a little more of what goes into their performances. Thanks for listening, and I'll leave you this time with an inscription from the grave of John Smith, who was a clothier in Froome in the west of England. He died in 1745. It was sent to me by Carolyn Griffiths, and it's not about the kind of transformations we've been talking about in this episode, but instead about the transformation from life to death. And I think it expresses beautifully the connection between threads and our life force. Frail is the vestment once I made, death have dissolved this human thread. My frame, I thought so firm, so whole, was but a clothing for the soul. The cloth and thread I wove and spun by time and weather were undone. 
And now the fates which upon the chain have cut the tread of life again.